Welcome to the Calvary Church Podcast. We're glad that you are here and that you can be a part of a recent service at TCC. So let's join the service, which is already underway, and listen to the message. I want to preach this morning, and the bulk of my message is going to be a story, but I feel compelled to preach this this morning. The gentleman was born on July 17th, 1674, in Southampton, England. His father was a pastor. As a child, he was known for his ability to rhyme. He displayed a propensity for rhyme from an early age. He was once asked why he had his eyes open during prayers, to which he responded, a little mouse for want of stairs ran up a rope to say its prayers. He received a corporal punishment for this, to which he cried, O Father, Father, pity take, and I will no more verses make. He was witty, and he was brilliant. His studies in language went far beyond everyday rhymes. In fact, he learned Latin at four, Greek at nine, French at ten, and Hebrew at thirteen. Sounds like Stephanie Cup. He took a special interest in church music and became frustrated with the heartless psalm singing of his time. This young man sometimes criticized the singing at his church. Anybody been there? Listening to his son's concern one day, His father challenged him. Well then, young man, why don't you give us something better to sing? So he rose to the challenge by writing his first hymn. The following week, the adolescent presented his first hymn to the church. The hymn was called, Behold the Glories of the Lamb, which he received a an enthusiastic response. In the last stanza of this song, we get a glimpse of this young man's desire to not just sing songs, but to make Jesus the focus of singing in the church. And that last stanza says, Thou hast redeemed our souls with blood, hast set the prisoners free, hast set the prisoners free, has made us king and priest to God, and we shall reign with thee, and we shall reign with thee. The career of this father of English hymnody had begun, and for the next two years he wrote a hymn for every Sunday. 1702, at 28 years old, he was ordained as senior pastor of a congregation 
the position he would retain to the end of his life when he died in 1749 at the age of 75 years old. He was a brilliant Bible student, and his sermons brought the church to life. He seemed that he wanted to put a special emphasis, though, in worship in a way that it wasn't just merely worship, but it allowed a focus to be put on Jesus Christ and the power of the cross. In one of his well-known hymns of the over 600 that he would come to write, he writes so powerfully, when I survey the wondrous cross on which the Prince of Glory died, my richest gain I count but lost and pour contempt on all my pride. Forbid it, Lord, that I should boast save in the death of Christ my God. All the vain things that charm me most, I sacrifice them to his blood. See from his head, his head, his hands and his feet, sorrow and love flow mingled down. Did ever such a love and sorrow meet, or thorns compose so rich a crown? His dying crimson, like a robe, spreads over his body on the tree. Then I am dead to all the globe. And all the globe is dead to me. Where the whole realm of nature, were the whole realm of nature mine, that were a present far too small. Love so amazing, so divine, demands my soul, my life, my all. The emphasis of Christ was found throughout his life and throughout his works. In his latter years, he continued to give his disdain about hymn singing in church. He was discouraged because the churches of his time mainly sang songs out of the book of Psalms in the Bible, which while they are powerful, they did not always connect with the believers, and specifically, the believers would not always connect the cross of Jesus Christ to the Psalms. He felt that just using the Psalms of David as songs kept believers from worshiping with fervency. He said of this to see the dull indifference, the negligence, and thoughtless air that sits upon the face of a whole assembly while the psalm is upon their lips might even tempt a charitable observer to suspect the fervency of their inward religion. In other words, they were just singing songs. They were just singing words, but it was not impacting their heart because it did not connect them to Jesus Christ. And wanting to bring New Testament light to the Psalms, he wrote paraphrases of nearly all the Psalms, publishing them in a hymnal titled Psalms of David imitated in the language of the New Testament. He felt strongly that the Christian church should sing of Christ. He explained his approach in writing hymns this way, and he said, where the psalmist describes religion by the fear of God, I have often joined faith and love to it. Where he speaks of the pardon of sin through the mercies of God, I rather choose to mention the sacrifice of Christ 
and the Lamb of God, where he promises abundant wealth and honor and long life. I have changed some of these typical blessings for grace and glory and life eternal, which are brought to light by the gospel and promised in the New Testament. David was speaking of this, this coming of Christ. And so he wasn't downplaying the significance of Psalms, but rather he was adding two psalms to really point the believer to what the psalm was actually talking about. It is in one such poem in his book, Psalms of David, imitated in the language of the New Testament, that he wrote that has become one of the most beloved and sung Christmas songs today. It's taken from Psalm 98. Psalm 98 says, O sing to the Lord a new song, for he has done marvelous things. His right hand and his holy arm have gained him the victory. The Lord has made known his salvation, his righteousness he has revealed in the sight of the nations. He has remembered his mercy and his faithfulness to the house of Israel. All the ends of the earth have seen the salvation of our God. Shout joyfully to the Lord, all the earth. Break forth in song, rejoice and sing praises. Sing to the Lord with the harp, with the harp and the sound of the psalm, with trumpets and the sound of a horn. Shout joyfully before the Lord, the King. Let the sea roar in all its fullness, the world and those who dwell in it. Let the river Rivers clap their hands, let the hills be joyful together before the Lord, for he is coming to judge the earth with righteousness. He shall judge the world and the peoples with equity. This poem, written by this man, inspired by Psalm 98, would become a Christmas song, but in fact it wasn't intended to be a Christmas song. It wasn't even written as a song by him, but rather it would be over a hundred years after his death, the death of this theologian and poet, that this would actually become a poem mixed with music to become a song. And it did not draw Specifically from what we would consider the classic Christmas story. But in 1707, this poem, Becoming a Song, brought a compelling message to Christmas time. In 1836, a man named Lowell Mason set the hymn to music. Mason was a Boston music teacher and the leading Presbyterian hymn composer in the United States. And using melody from Handel's Messiah, Mason took Isaac Watts' hymn and composed a song called Joy to the World. The song was published during the Christmas season, and that is how the song became associated with the holiday celebrating the birth of Jesus. 
And at one point, it was reportedly the most published Christmas carol in the United States. Isaac Watt wrote the hymn with Psalm 98 in view. Verse 4, shout joyfully to the Lord all the earth. Break forth in song, rejoice and sing praises. As I mentioned, he is not in this passage and in his poem writing about the birth of Christ. But rather, he is writing about the second coming of Jesus Christ. Watts reflected on Psalm 98 in verse number 9. And he said, for he is coming to judge the earth. With righteousness he shall judge the world and the peoples with equity. However, we realize today... That we do well during the Christmas time to see that his first coming points us to his second coming. It was after Jesus Christ would die, was buried, and rose again and ascended into heaven that Acts 1.10 tells us, while they looked steadfastly toward heaven as he went up, behold, two men stood by them in white apparel who also said, men of Galilee, why do you stand here gazing up into heaven? This same Jesus who was taken up from you into heaven will so come in like manner as you have seen him go into heaven. His first coming to earth points us to his second coming. So Isaac Watts wrote, joy to the world. The Lord is come. Let earth receive her king. Let every heart prepare him room and heaven and nature sing. Like Jesus came the first time to dwell with humanity, Jesus will come again. When Jesus made his way into Jerusalem, he made his way as he was going towards the cross. He made his way into Jerusalem before he was crucified. And the multitude, they began to worship him. And I believe it was prophetic worship that pointed them and us to his second coming and it says the whole multitude in Luke 19:37 began to rejoice and praise God with a loud voice for all the mighty works they had seen saying blessed is the king who comes in the name of the Lord blessed is the king who comes in the name of the Lord and just like he came the first time he's coming again and we do well to worship him and say blessed is the king who comes in the name of the Lord peace in heaven and glory in the highest joy to the world the Lord is come let earth receive her king let every heart prepare him room in heaven and nature sing let every heart prepare him room Much as Jesus did everything he could to make a way for you, he still chooses to merely stand at the door and knock. 
He is waiting for our invitation to let him him let him in. And while Jesus is king, he operates by our permission in our lives. In Revelation 3:20, he said, "Behold, I stand at the door and knock. If anyone hears my voice and opens the door, I will come in to him and dine with him and he with me. Let every heart prepare him room. I believe that for somebody today that you're one prayer away from opening the door to salvation in your life. You're one door away from opening the door to the power of God in your life. Cause joy to the world, the Lord is come. Let earth, let us receive her king. Isaac Watts continued joy to the world. The Savior reigns. Let men their songs employ. While fields and floods, rocks, hills, and plains repeat the sounding joy. What is he referencing? He's looking back at Psalm 98 Verse 4, where it says, shout joyfully to the Lord, all the earth. Break forth in song, rejoice and sing praises. Sing to the Lord with the harp, with the harp and the sound of a psalm, with the trumpets and the sound of a horn. Shout joyfully before the Lord, the King. And then he says, let the sea roar in all its fullness, the world and all those who dwell in it. Let the rivers clap their hands. Let the hills be joyful together before the Lord, for he is Coming to judge the earth with righteousness, he shall judge the world and the peoples with equity. He saw an echoing of praise in this psalm. And so he said, joy to the world, the Savior reigns. Let men their songs employ. Let them play on their instruments. And while they play on their instruments, the fields and the floods and the rocks, hills and plains will repeat the sounding joy. Oh, hallelujah. So heaven and earth worship this mighty king. He saw an echoing of praise. The next stanza of Isaac Watts' poem is not always included in the singing of joy to the world. Most modern renditions of it, you can list the greatest of the greatest. They won't have it in here. My favorite Christmas artist of all time, He's nervous. Mariah Carey is the greatest <laughs> Christmas artist of all time. Some of you have just checked out. You're, you're leaving now. She sings, Whitney Houston sings this. She doesn't include this verse. But one, I think that is compelling. The line makes joyful sense when we understand it from the New Testament eyes through which Watts interprets the psalm. He says, no more let sins and sorrows grow, nor thorns infest the ground. He comes to make his blessings flow far as the curse is found. Watts actually walks us back to Genesis chapter 3 and reminds us, Not to let sin and sorrows grow in our life, 
But more importantly, he's coming to tell us about the blessing that is flowing. And where is it flowing? Everywhere there's a curse. That means it can touch any one of our lives. I don't care what family curse you have. I don't care what brokenness you come from. I don't care. We were all apart and faced the same curse that was recorded in Genesis chapter 3. But he comes to make his blessings flow. For as the curse is found. Finally, Isaac Watts reminds us, he rules the world with truth and grace and makes the nations prove the glories of his righteousness and wonders of his love. Truth and grace. John said, and the word became flesh. And dwelt among us, tabernacled among us, and we beheld his glory, the glory as of the only begotten of the Father, full of grace and truth. In verse 17, he says, for the law was given through Moses, but grace and truth came through Jesus Christ. One theologian said, these two ideas should hold our minds and direct our lives God is grace, and God is truth. It's not one without the other. It's not the other apart from the one. In his government, there can be no lowering of the simple and severe standard of truth. There is a truth, and there is no departure from the purpose and passion of grace. He rules the world with truth and grace. Would you stand with me this morning? Isaac Watts concludes this poem with the words, the glories of his righteousness and wonders of his love. The wonders of his love. It's almost impossible to fully comprehend God's love for us because we don't have a person living today who represents the full measure of his love. We get glimpses of his love from people in our lives who live to God's standard of love. But we never get the full measure of it. But it's a wondrous thing. God's love for you, God's love for me, is a wondrous thing. Ephesians chapter 2 verse 4 says, But God who is rich in mercy... Because of his great love with which he loved us. Even when we were dead in trespasses. Made us alive together with Christ by grace you have been saved. 
and raised us up together and made us sit together in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus. That in the ages to come, he might show the exceeding riches of his grace in his kindness towards us in Christ Jesus. Joy to the world. The Lord has come. Isaac Watts helped the church in the 1700s understand something I think it's imperative for us to understand today. There is no joy without Christ coming into our lives. Joy is a product of God's presence. When God comes in, he brings joy. That's why you can experience joy in a service like this. Even when you got chaos, brokenness, and sadness going on all around you. Because when God's presence shows up, it's joy unspeakable. It's joy immeasurable and full of glory. So I do well today to invite the King of Glory to show up in my world. And how do I do that? I simply worship Him with whatever language I know to speak, whatever simplicity and humility of heart I know how to say. I just simply worship God. Say, God, you are the King of Kings and you're the King of my heart. This podcast was brought to you by the Calvary Church in Cincinnati, Ohio. For more information about the Calvary Church, please visit our website at www.thecalvarychurch.com. Consider joining us for a service where you will find friendly people, high-energy music, and life-transforming preaching and teaching from a biblical worldview. You can find our podcast on iTunes, Google Play, or on our website at www.thecalvarychurch.com. Until next time, thanks for listening.